Section 4 of The Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. Part 4. I go back again in my memories to that year in the underwater Marinoid city of Rax, the year of quiet and peace for Nona and me, which followed the birth of our son. Boy, we called him. Everyone called him that, for he was the only child of his kind in our world. It was a wonderful happy time for us both. In all the universe there was never another like our boy. So thought Nona and I. Pink and white, with his laughing blue eyes and soft blonde hair on his little head, he would lie cradled in the big white shell that stood in the center of our living room. The tiny bits of vegetation which often floated in the water past his face were his toys to snatch at and demolish. And Nona, who fed him, crooned to him, and when he was no more than a month or two old, guided his baby flounderings into swimming strokes, was the center of everything around which his infant world revolved. For myself, almost an outsider with these two, it was enough to watch them playing together, to see the light of motherhood in my Nona's eyes, and the glory of it on her face. The time, unmarked by daylight or darkness down here in the water, glided by, and for us the passing days meant only that boy was growing larger. His limbs were lengthening, his neck would now support his head, he could swim, and soon he would begin to talk. Thus can happiness exclude one from the world around. Yes, it must not be inferred that we lived at home in complete seclusion. There were happy times with our friend Cain and his family, in his home when boy would lie there asleep, and we others would play at a game of floating shells. And there were other times when I went hunting with the prince. He seemed to like me, and his friendship, I must confess, was to me a great joy and pride. Like many another prince of your own earth, Prince Attar was a sportsman. Occasionally, heading a little party of his friends, he and I would hunt together, swimming off toward the water of wild things, where, over the cliffs which bordered the Marinoid domain, strange, fearsome creatures would sometimes trespass. Cities work. My means of livelihood? Oh yes, I was a worker like the rest. There was no place in racks for a drone, and Nona and I were by no means guests of the city no longer than the first month or two. When they gave us our home, I was assigned to work with Cain. After each time of sleep, we swam out with our baskets into the open spaces beyond the forest which surrounded the city. We would gather up the shell food that lay on the sea bottom. It was continually sifting down from above, and what we collected was later gathered and driven into racks to the government storehouses. Cain's wife worked with us, for women, even though married, were obliged to work for the public good a portion of the time. After Boy was born, Nona too often joined us, though this was not obligatory, for the care of infant children discharged a woman of the debt of working otherwise. There is so much that my memory holds to tell you of this strange Marinoid civilization. But you, with your life to live at high speed, would weary of me if I were not careful. You want everything at a glance, and you shall have it. Let me say, then, that during this peaceful year, there were occurring in Rax a series of mysterious incidents of an exceedingly sinister character. Incidents which shortly were to lead us into the most stirring and critical period of Marinoid history. But we did not know this at the time. Life, wherever in the universe it may be found, runs on a similar plan. It's like a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle whose picture remains undefined until you fit the last segment into place. So it was with these ominous events that now occurred one by one in Rax. And the absent Og, I may say, was at the bottom of them. Each in itself seemed relatively unimportant, yet all were part of a plan of destruction 
that was menacing us like an unseen sword hung suspended. We awoke to a realization of the danger finally. You shall hear how it was I, who, when the thing at last struck home as a personal tragedy to me, played a leading part in the stirring scenes that followed. May I ask you first to bear with me a moment more, while I give you a very brief summary of the conditions in our marinoid world. I know you will chafe. A thousand supposedly pressing duties of your own super-civilized life are forcing themselves upon you even at this moment of relaxation. Set them aside, I beg you. They are not nearly so important as you think. If you were to die tonight, leaving all of them undone, your world would go on as placidly as before. A moment, then, and you shall have action and movement to your heart's content. Chapter 2 The region of the Marinoids was a stretch of water bounded by great rocky cliffs on all sides. It was subterranean water, by which I mean that ascending in it, one came at last to a rocky ceiling. We were, at racks, near the centre of this subterranean sea. What was its extent I cannot say. All measurements, all standards of comparison were lost to me. In depth, at racks, it might have been 2,000 feet or more from the seafloor to the ceiling above, which is to say some two or three times the depth of the city itself. How many entrances there were from the outside world I do not know. Through one of them, Nona and I had come when Cain and his party first encountered us. To the Marinoids, who were not explorers, the idea of a surface to water was inexplicable. They could not conceive of such a thing. They could not understand it when I tried to explain it to them. There were several Marinoid cities besides racks, but none nearly so large. And there was, shall I say, a rural population. In the great forests, Marinoid dwellings were occasionally to be found, isolated huts of seaweed, clinging like bird nests to the wavering branches of the trees. And in the open water, other scattered families of the more adventurous turn lived in huge shells from which they had excavated the living tissue, or lived in holes hollowed out of the banks of black ooze. The boundaries of the Marinoid domain presented themselves as almost perpendicular cliffs, dark, jagged rock with slabs and banks of black clay, mounds of coral, red, black, and white, or a tangle of slimy vegetation, openings which were caves, a cliff face honeycombed with them, and the ceiling was of similar character. One of the boundaries, the one nearly opposite to where Nona and I had entered this world, was somewhat different. Here the cliff face rose to over 3,000 feet but here also the ceiling was even higher, so that between them there was left an opening a hundred feet or more in height, and a mile at least in horizontal width. It was a fearsome opening. Its floor seemed to extend backward and downward. The water in there was black, a thick slimy ooze was under it, and there seemed to be in it the suggestion of a noisome stench that lay beyond. This was the entrance to another region of unknown extent, the water of wild things, as the Marinoids called it. What might lie in there, none could say. A few had penetrated into it a short distance, and returned with lurid tales which none believed, and others had gone and never come back. But that there were half-savage humans living there, everyone believed. Og was bred of them, some said, and now that he had voluntarily gone there to live, as rumour had it, so much seemed a certainty. Strange animals occasionally came from the water of wild things. A sea monster had come once, but that was in the dim past, remembered only by legend. The monster had all but overcome the cloud of Marinoids, who had desperately set upon it. Such were the conditions under which we at Rax were living. And now I am ready to tell you of that series of incidents which awakened us to our danger. They did not at first concern me personally, and so I paid them little heed. 
That is the commentary upon your own life, is it not? Soon the thing struck home to me with his tragedy. Ah, then how different it seemed. We can bear the grief of our friend so much more philosophically than our own. Chapter 3 The first of these incidents in Rax came when Boy was about two months old. A young virgin, the daughter of one of Cain's workers, disappeared. She was a girl somewhat younger than Nona. She was beautiful in Marinoid fashion. To you, all these Marinoids must seem grotesque. Unhuman, perhaps. But beauty is not universally standardized, only locally. We admire our own kind. Your natives of Zanzibar think their own black-skinned, thick-lipped bells the most beautiful on earth. And as I have said once before, in the Marinoid world, the Marinoid women were the standard of beauty. Nona, so different, was the exception, the abnormality. This girl who disappeared had been with one of Cain's scattered parties working on the sea bottom, gathering shell food. She had wandered away from the others, and when the time came to return to Rax, she was missing. We thought she might have become ill and gone home. But she was not at home, nor could she be found anywhere in the city. Even this did not arouse much interest, except to her own immediate family. It was thought that some young Marinoid man had taken her for mate. According to custom, the couple might readily have disappeared for a time, gone out together to live in the forest to escape work until their first period of love was passed. But there seemed no young man unaccounted for, and the girl did not return. Even so, the incident would have been forgotten, but soon another young girl disappeared. There were perhaps thirty who vanished during that year. They were not all from the workers outside the city. We had long since ceased to take women with us, and those who lived in the forests and the mudbanks came crowding into racks and to the other cities nearby. We knew very soon, of course, that our Marinoid women were being stolen, and there was one crowning incident that at last made us understand. It was at what you would call midnight when the city was asleep. Cain and I, on a belated errand, were swimming down one of the vertical streets. The place was deserted, the street was empty. The lights at intervals on the side walls of the houses illuminated the water with a green diffused glow, like lights in a thick fog at night on your earth. The windows along the street for the most part stood open. Everywhere was heavy silence, with only the swish of the water as Cain and I swam through it. A green figure in the horizontal street below us attracted our attention. It seemed to be a man swathed in a green cloak of seaweed. He saw us coming and darting up the street light, which hung nearby, he flung something over it. The light was obliterated. Shadows fell over everything. The kidnappers. Cain and I were startled. We hung poised just above the cross street so that we could see along it in both directions. There were lights at distant corners. We heard a low but penetrating cry from near at hand. A signal. Other figures in the distance darted up through the water and put out the lights. The entire street was in darkness. Cain and I whirled downward, shouting. Through the window of a house, we saw the stiffened body of a woman come floating. There was light enough for us to see her white face and arms. A woman, unconscious, shocked into insensibility, as we later learned, by a bolt of animal electricity from her abductor. Her body floated from the window as though pushed from behind. In the darkness, green-swathed forms seized it, forms which were barely discernible as blurs in the dark water, seized it and began rapidly towing it away. Cain and I were after them. Our cries were arousing the city. Voices, confused questions, came from within the houses. Figures appeared. The street behind us was in a turmoil. The woman's body, with its almost invisible assailants, was moving forward rapidly. Lines of white, as the heavily aerated water was stirred, 
radiated out V-shaped from its rapid progress. But Kane and I, unburdened, could swim faster. We overtook the invaders. There was a struggle in the darkness. A bolt of electricity went through me, but I recovered from it. Kane was shouting in hot anger as he struck at the green shapes that were attacking him. The water all about us was lashed into white. It caught and reflected the light from a suddenly illuminated window near at hand. I found myself gripping Og. You! But my voice seemed to inspire him to frenzied effort. He jerked away from me, was gone into the shadows. Kane was now shouting triumphantly. He had dispersed his adversaries. The woman's white body, neglected, had sunk to the floor of the street. We swam down to her, chafed her arms and neck until at last she recovered consciousness. The street was relighted, the houses were emptying themselves of their frightened inmates. A crowd gathered around us with confused, startled questioning. But Og and all his cohorts had escaped. An hour later, when I returned home, Boy was lying in the hollow white shell which was his cradle, crying lustily, and Nona, my Nona, was gone. Chapter 4 The hours that followed were a confused horror and despair to me, yet there seemed no one but myself and Cain, who considered this disaster more vital than those which had preceded it. At last we knew that the young women of Rax were being stolen, from under our very eyes, from the heart of the city, in the silence of the time of sleep. We knew now also that they were being taken into the dread water of wild things. Og's presence proved that. Og had gone to live with the fabled humans, half-savage, that legend said lived with the monsters of that strange dark region. And now Og had come back, and had been caught in the very act of an abduction. It was all clear now, and all we had to do was to guard our women, to watch carefully the entrance to the water of wild things, that nothing, human or savage, could come out of it to trespass on the Marinoid domain. Rescue planned. Thus ran the sentiment of the city. And the king, making a speech from the parapet of his palace rooftop, assured us in flowing phrases that the danger was now past. No marauders could come from the water of wild things, now that we were on the alert to stop them. He, our monarch, assured us of that. Our women in future were secure. Had Nona been safe at my side, no doubt I should have applauded those sentiments, as did most of the other onlookers. But Nona was not at my side. She was gone, into that horrible unknown region, from whence none returned. The king said Marinoid women were now safe. What was that to me, with my Nona gone? There was talk of an expedition into the water of wild things. But none would volunteer, save those comparatively few who had already lost wives or daughters. Cain stood by me. He would go. And I, there would have been no sleep or food for me again had I tried to stay in racks and yield up Nona to her fate. There were no artificial weapons available in racks, save of one type, that slim hunting spear made of fishbone, the spear with which the king's attendant had struck me down when first I was being brought to racks. These spears were all the prints and I had for our hunting expeditions. Other weapons? The Marinoids had had them in times gone by, but once, a lifetime before, Civil war had broken out between two of the Marinoid cities, and when it was over, all weapons, save the simple spear, were abolished. There seemed no need of weapons. There was practically no wildlife in Marinoid waters. The monster that had once come to devour them was a fable out of the distant past, and so they lived on in a false security, that security of disarmament, which is so fatuous, making themselves defenseless so that they would not be tempted to fight. 
and forgetting that their very defenselessness must prove an irresistible temptation for some enemy to attack them. We organized our meager, pitiful little rescue party, led by Cain and me, with Cain's wife to care for Boy while we were gone. There was no more than fifty of us in total. Then, quite without warning, Prince Attar signified his intention of joining us, commanding us in person. Can you guess the joy it brought to my heart? Our prince, disregarding even the commands of his father, was coming with us. Attar, for so I called him now in the intimacy which had come between us, was younger than myself, a slim, clear-featured youth with a boyish smile, but eyes which had in them the look of one born to command. And Cain, a man past the zenith of his life, whose arms were no longer limber with youth, but with a body strong and sturdy nonetheless. With these two to help me, I felt that I could conquer whatever strange creatures we might encounter, and get my Nona back. Our party was no more than together when Atar announced we were making a mistake. There were fifty of us practically unarmed. We were too large a party to go anywhere in secret. We would, by our very numbers, be but provoking an attack. The Prince's Plan Atar's plan, in brief, was that he, Cain, and myself— should slip quietly into the water of wild things and see what conditions were there. Then, perhaps without ever having been seen or forcing an encounter, we could return and plan an expedition in greater force, a force sufficiently great to ensure success. To me, whose one and only desire was to follow Nona and get her back, the prince's words seemed rational indeed. What did I care for the safety of those other marinoid girls who had been stolen? The prince, nevertheless, was right from every angle and so it was decided that we three should go alone. I shall never forget the scene as the prince parted from his mother on the rooftop of the palace. We were going to what everyone considered almost certain death. We would go, and they would never see or hear from us again. But with these marinoids there were no heroics, no shouting and applause as the heroes went forth to battle. That is left for you really civilized humans who wage war after a more vainglorious fashion. These marinoids, crowding every corner of the cube of open water before the king's palace, hovered in silence as we prepared to leave, and the silence deepened as the queen stood before her son, and he knelt at her feet. "'Good-bye, Atar,' she said, and her glance included Cain and me. "'We will wait and hope for you to come back.' Her arm brushed his sleek head as he rose and turned away. We departed, and her brave, inscrutable smile followed us, as between those silent, solemn ranks of spectators we slowly swam along the streets and out of the city. And presently, with tumultuously beating hearts, we three, with only our slender spears, were approaching the dread black opening which marked the entrance to the water of wild things. Chapter 5 We entered the opening, swimming in a group with a tar leading. It was already new territory for us. Our hunting expeditions had never taken us even as far as this, we were always content to remain in marinoid waters. As we advanced, the rocky ceiling overhead was closing down on us, until soon there was no more than twice the length of our bodies between it and the floor. On both sides, the dark waters stretched out as far as we could see, into blackness also. We were descending now at an angle of perhaps forty-five degrees. We had gone what you would call a mile, possibly, when we came suddenly to a tangle of coral, a barrier that reached from floor to ceiling. I call it coral, it might have been a petrified vegetation. An all but impenetrable thickness, white like the frosted underbrush of your northern winter forests, it seemed to bar our further progress. We stopped, consulted, and swam to the left and right. 
but the tangle extended in both directions to the edges of the mile-wide passageway. It is this, said Attar, which keeps our own region free of monsters. They cannot easily pass a barrier like this. He was smiling at Cain and me. To this, perhaps, we owe our safety. Cain was poking at the thicket, and we found after a moment that we could with difficulty force our way through it. The realization that Attar's words brought us was at once reassuring and alarming. If no creatures of the wild could pass this barrier, what then might lie on its other side? Cain, older and more poised than either Attar or me, was wasting no time on such thoughts. Come, he said, here we can get through. The white underbrush must have extended for several hundred feet back and downward. We forced our bodies through it, seeking small orifices, bending aside the twigs, or breaking them off, for they were very brittle. We were an hour or more getting through. A few small bottle-shaped fish with protruding ball-like eyes on the sides of the head lurked here and there. They watched us curiously, unafraid, almost resentful, it seemed, with their sidelong glances and their hasteless movements to avoid us. But we paid them little heed, for such as they often wandered into marinoid waters and were easily killed with their spears. The tangle of white underbrush gave way at last into open water. Again we saw the ceiling and floor close together, the same narrow slit sloping sharply downward. With the white underbrush gone, the water seemed darker, so dark that we could hardly see each other a few lengths away. It was warmer, too, unpleasantly warm, and to our nostrils came the taint of that stench now unmistakable. On search. We had been swimming downward for what seemed an interminable time, when abruptly the floor beneath us dropped away into a perpendicular cliff. Simultaneously the ceiling had heightened, disappeared into the watery shadows. We found ourselves poised, with a vast void of ink before us. It might have been illimitable for all we could see of its boundaries, and empty. There was nothing but blackness. But it was that pregnant blackness that seems not empty but merely to conceal. We must go down, said Attar. I could hear that he was trying to keep his voice steady. They would live down on the sea bottom. We descended along the side of the perpendicular cliff. A thousand feet? Three thousand? I cannot say. The water grew steadily warmer until its heat began seriously to oppress us. The thought came to me suddenly that we were well into the bowels of my meteor. Its internal fires, now very close perhaps, were heating the water. My meteor! How remote the outside world! the outer surface, the heavens, Saturn, the stars and the vast unfathomable distances of the stellar universe seemed to me now. I had been born out there somewhere. It was the first time in ages that such a memory had crossed my mind. Look, said Cain softly. We huddled together against that black cliff face. Below us in the void, a glowing point of light was moving. It seemed miles away, but it was no more than twenty or thirty feet for as it approached we saw it was a long, sinuous thing, with an illuminated head, a head that glowed phosphorescent, luridly green. We held our breaths. The thing went past us quietly, without seeming to notice us. It was a ribbon-like thing, about thirty feet long, two feet high, and no more than a few inches thick. A pallid white ribbon of puffy slime, frayed and tattered at its edges, it undulated gruesomely from end to end. In a moment it was gone, into that void of ink from whence it had come. Again we descended. Other creatures passed us, headless things of black with illuminated parasites clinging to them, great fishes, star-shaped, with a brilliant green head in the centre and each point of the star as long as our bodies, 
fishes, or were they animals, that were all head, it seemed. We took heart, for none seemed to notice us. But there was a balloon of white jelly. It floated past us quite close. It was larger than any one of us. It seemed harmless, and a tar swam beside it. Then suddenly the thing expanded, lost all its form, and like a cloud of white mist enveloped him. He screamed, and we rushed to his rescue. In an instant we were all three plunged into a confused, frantic horror, for which I can find no words. Like thick white glue that was sticky yet slimy, this almost imponderable stuff fought with us. Fought, I say, for it was using an intelligence against us. We floundered, flailing the water with frantic arms and legs. A noisome stench from the gluey stuff sickened us. The feel of it made our flesh crawl and the gorge rise in our throats. It was uncannily flimsy stuff. We could tear it into shreds, fling it away, but always it came back to weld itself together. There was an intelligence to it. Not a centralized power of thought, like a brain, but an instinct for battle that must have been inherent in every smallest fiber of it. We escaped at last. How, I do not know. Perhaps the thing wearied of us. And as we struggled away, exhausted, with its horrible gluey particles, which we had breathed in, choking our lungs, we saw it floating off, ragged but still balloon-like, its original shape almost unimpaired. Search continues. We reached at last the bottom of the void. It was not level, but tumbled as though some cataclysm of nature had tossed it about. Banks of black ooze, a hundred feet high, were honeycombed with holes. Valleys were beside them, valleys bristling with stalactites of black and white coral, which stood up like pointed spears to impede the unwary trespasser. And there were miniature volcanic-looking peaks, cone-shaped. From one of them, a stream of water almost hot was issuing. Frequently now we saw lights, and all of them were the naturally lighted heads and bodies of swimming creatures. They moved about lazily, confidently ignoring us, and we knew that when they were hungry they would feed, either upon others smaller of their kind, or upon us. Over this tumbled, broken sea-bottom, where occasionally a giant crab or something of the kind would scuttle from a shadow into one of the deeper shadow's holes, we swam at an altitude of about fifty feet. We carried no light, and our bodies were shrouded in green-black cloaks. We still held our spears, poor, useless, futile things. Yet, as Atar said, they might not be useless against humans. And it was the humans, with their greater intelligence, that we now feared most. Conditions of life here in the water of wild things now became plain to us. These wild creatures were, for the most part, inoffensive, up to the point of satisfying their own need of food. They fed upon each other and thus reduced their number. The humans in open battle with them were doubtless helpless. But the humans had the intelligence to hide, to escape. And the creatures of the wild did not bother unduly to pursue them. Does this seem illogical to you? I assure you it is not. The conditions we found here in the water of wild things, in the bowels of that meteor flying amid the rings of Saturn, were almost identical with those which prevailed in the early periods of your own Earth's history. There is not, and never has been, a wild creature as predatory, as ferocious as man himself. Your lion and tiger are cowards unless spurred by fright or hunger. The wild animals of your earth would have been glad to live at peace with mankind. It has been man himself who consistently has been the aggressor. See there, cried Cain softly. Is that perhaps a place where humans live? Below us, in the distance ahead, 
were a number of tiny pinpoints of light, and even as Cain spoke, a human figure passed near us, a figure swimming swiftly downward, with a fugitive frightened speed. It seemed to hold a sort of lantern in one of its hands outstretched, a small shrouded light to guide it through the darkness. It did not see us, and in a moment it had passed downward into the shadows. But the moving point of light remained visible. Come, urged Cain softly. That will show us the way. Hurry. We swam downward, following the point of light. Chapter 6 The light ahead of us winked like a will-o'-the-wisp, as intervening branches of coral, the edge of a mud bank, or perhaps the body of some living creature momentarily blotted it out. We were close to the bottom now. Along here it was a rolling but fairly even bank of ooze, with grotesque squat plants growing in it. The light could not have been more than a few hundred feet in advance of us. In its glow we could sometimes see the outlines of the human figure carrying it. We did not dare speak aloud now. We swam with that speed and silence which only one who lives in the water can attain. Presently the light dipped downward and vanished. We saw that this figure we were following had entered a black cave mouth, an opening which ran diagonally down into a slimy bank of mud. And we saw, too, that the points of steady light which had first attracted our attention were the reflected glow of illumination from somewhere beneath the seafloor. Silently we slipped into the cave mouth. The moving light was down there, then abruptly it disappeared. Wait, whispered Kane. Go slower. We advanced cautiously, and came again to a hedge of coral which impeded our passage. But this barrier we saw at once was artificial. It was the crude doorway, created by human intelligence and industry, which barred the creatures of the wild from entering. We threaded our way through it. Any one of those sea monsters could have battered it down had he known his strength. But such a knowledge is only given to man. Beyond the barrier, the dim glow of a diffused green light became visible. We edged cautiously forward, turned a corner, came suddenly to a ledge, and stopped, breathless, with wildly beating hearts. We were looking down from near the ceiling of a cave. The water filling it was lighted with a pale green radiance that lent a ghastly, wavering unreality to the scene. The cave might have been several hundred feet in width, nearly circular, and shallow, a hundred feet perhaps from floor to ceiling. The opposite wall to us was plainly visible. It was gouged out with niches and ranks and tiers, shallow ledges like the houses of your ancient, most primitive cliff dwellers. We could see little family groups squatting on many of them, humans not unlike the marinoids in form, men and women and children. But it was none of this that caused our hearts to leap so wildly. The floor of this community house was at the moment crowded with human figures. The figure we had followed in was swimming downward to join them. On a raised platform, a shelf of ooze at the side and bottom of the cave, several old men were sitting. They were not marinoids but they seemed to differ principally in the eyes, which were much larger and more vacant, and in the pallid, ghastly whiteness of the puffy flesh of their bodies. On that same platform stood Og. He was gazing down at the throng of people before him, haranguing them. His voice reached us, not marinoid words, but enough like them, a corruption, to make them intelligible to us. All this we saw at a brief glance, and the crowning thing, on the platform also, between Og and the old white men, my Nona was sitting with her arms bound at her sides. My Nona, beautiful as always, pink skin, blue eyes, and golden hair, so vivid among that pallid, ghastly throng. And she was unharmed, with spirit unbroken, 
I could see that by the flash of her eyes, her scornful, unwavering gaze as she leveled it at the puffy white faces staring up at her. My Nona. Chapter 7. Are you, my reader, wearied of me? Perhaps you are, and I am a proud old man who will force his words upon no one. You perhaps can anticipate what further adventures befell me in this dark and curious world, and what, after all, is their culmination to you. To me they are glorious memories of the deeds of my youth, and age lives upon its memories, as you know. To you these memories of mine mean, what, a chance to laugh, to ridicule? I am too sensitive, perhaps. Mayhap I do you an injustice. That some of you indeed ask me earnestly to tell you of my past is gratifying, and I thank you for it. I will tell you more if you really wish it. Tell you as best I may, the plain and simple truth of my queer and clouded life. Or, if you prefer, I will have done. Lock it in my heart and live it over for myself alone. It is for you to say. End of section 4